Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now pushing 80. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. Our guest is historian and author Kate Clifford Larson. She is a Harriet Tubman scholar. Her 2003 biography of Harriet Tubman, Bound for the Promised Land, was one of the first non-juvenile Tubman biographies published in six decades. Her new book is titled Walk With Me, a biography of Fannie Lou Hamer. I'm joined by 10 of my Harvard College classmates. Hamp. Camp Howell in Nashville, Tennessee. What you said, John, makes me think of how much history there is buried in uh, all of us that will probably be buried with us. Well, somebody ought to interview us and do a, do a uh, book on it. <laughs> well, yeah. you're, you're, le- you're leaving a trace, I'm sure. Trace <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jerry. Good morning. Uh, Pasadena, California. I'm an environmental lawyer. I've worked for the good guys and the bad guys, hopefully mostly for the good guys. So <laughs> did a stint in the Peace Corps and just enjoying life these days. Okay. Nick. Nick Bancroft outside of Boston, little place called Medfield, Mass, halfway to Providence from Winchester. And uh, <clears throat> uh, was a classmate of these guys and uh, spent most of my career um, either in manufacturing or trust estates and investments. But a long, long, long time ago, my wife and I were in the Peace Corps in India for two years. And I think ever since, uh, whenever I look around, I sort of feel like I'm still in the Peace Corps looking at a strange, strange country with all sorts of stuff that's gone on and is going on. And who the hell knows what's going to happen next kind of feeling. Right, right. Alden. Um, I'm Alden Briscoe, and uh, I lived in various places, uh, Aiken, South Carolina for three years, uh, New Haven, uh, where I taught in inner city school, not called Yale, um, lived in D.C., Flint, Michigan, Chicago, and now in San Mateo, California. And my wife and I have a fundraising consulting firm. Okay, Mason. Uh, I am now, uh, for the winter, installed in... Uh, Gulfport, Florida, which is basically a neighborhood of St. Petersburg, uh, Florida. And as Nick Bancroft said, I feel like I'm a stranger in a strange land down here. Uh, <laughs> dystopian government. But uh, I do want to honor John Woodford by putting on my oh. state of Maine baseball cap. <laughs> oh, hey. uh, that's, a, that's a good one. That's a good one. Good that. Good uh, Peter. I'm, I'm, in, I'm back in New Hampshire where I live, and I'm just back from John Woodward's territory in Michigan. And I stayed long enough to see the Michigan-Ohio game last oh, week. Yeah. Uh, go blue. <laughs> so I think I'm a Michigan fan now. Anyway, when I left Harvard, I, I joined this the uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in South Georgia, and I worked with Charles Sherrod there. And I'm always, I always like to hear about the people over in Mississippi, though. So I'm looking forward to it. Okay. Uh, Jeffrey. 
Jeff. Oh, okay. Hi. Uh, yeah. Well, I am in. Uh, I am currently in Madrid. Uh, when I was a graduate student at Northwestern University, and uh, uh, we started an SDS chapter, we invited Fannie Lou Hamer. So I had a, a brief contact with her, and we had her speak. Um, so that's my my connection so far. All right, David. Uh, David Othmer, Philadelphia. I don't know if I've told all you guys, I grew up in South America, in Central America, Puerto Rico, Guatemala, Brazil, spent some time in Colombia. My parents lived in Venezuela, Argentina, <clears throat> and my life has been mainly in public broadcasting in New York City and here in Philadelphia. Okay, George. Oh, I am currently in Atlanta. I apologize for having missed so many wonderful podcasts recently, but I've been moving and traveling and working in the lab and generally not being retired. And wow. I was actually in Ann Arbor last weekend, and John and I watched that game together. Marcy, how are you? I'm all right. Uh, <laughs> we have a health care crisis in New York State, especially in Buffalo, where I have family in the hospital. Oh, boy. Um, and I'm running a nonprofit on still working um, and I can't do it all. <laughs> and Kate, Kate Clifford Lawson, welcome. And uh, tell us about you, about your book, about your life. And good to have you. Well, thank you for having me. Um, it's great to be here. I'm a born and raised Mainer, by the way. All um, right. Yeah, yeah. I hope someday we can retire to, to Maine. Um, and my daughter went to University of Michigan, so she's a, oh. yeah, Michigan grad, oh. too. <clears throat> Go Blue, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Does she live here now? She lives in Massachusetts, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, so anyway, about me. So um, I, I have my undergraduate degree from Simmons here in Boston and an MBA from Northeastern University and um, um, another master's from um, Simmons in gender studies. And then I went on to get my PhD in American history at the University of New Hampshire, um, specializing, specializing in women's and African-American history. Um, and so, you know, history has always been a passion of mine, even though when I got out of college, I went the business route. Um, <clears throat> but as I got older and started a family, I really missed that, that side of me that really loved history. So that's why I went back to school to get my degrees in history. And um, I became very interested in African-American history during my time at Simmons. I had a professor then that um, I had had during the 1970s when I was at Simmons and he was teaching an African-American history course and I decided to take it. And, um, and he was a fantastic professor, Mark Solomon. And within two weeks, I knew that I wanted to concentrate on African-American history in addition to women's history. And at the same time, um, I had a young daughter who was seven at time, Rebecca, who went to Michigan. And she was in second grade and came home with a little biography of Harriet Tubman. And of course I knew about Tubman and I just, because I was in this program at Simmons, I thought, oh, I'm gonna read an adult book of, about Harriet Tubman. And all I could find were two 19th century biographies and then one written in 1943. And my professors at Simmons were stunned that there, was, there wasn't a new biography of Tubman during the 1990s. 
So that was my goal to research her life. And that's what I did at the University of New Hampshire. Uh, she was the subject of my dissertation. And that was my first book, um, Bound for the Promised Land, um, about Harriet Tubman. And while I was in graduate studies at Simmons, I learned about Fannie Lou Hamer. And she always stuck in my mind because she was very similar to Harriet Tubman in many ways, um, coming out of really difficult circumstances, an environment that was very oppressive, but um, someone who centered their lives around uh, their family, the community, and how faith was a huge uh, part of their lives and that they emerged out of these difficult circumstances to become great leaders. And so Hamer was always in the back of my mind when I was looking for other book subjects. I just, I did not turn to Fannie Lou Hamer. I wrote other books instead. But after the last book that I wrote on um, Rosemary Kennedy of all people, um, there Fannie Lou Hamer was like knocking at my brain and saying, hello, hello, you know, let's, let's start looking at you know, me again. So that's when I decided to commit to researching her life. And I, I guess it was part as a result of we had a black president for eight years and politics were changing and then they were changing back and the world was getting more restrictive. And, and I guess the racism just was rising up out of the ashes or what I thought were the ashes and other people thought were the ashes. And, um, so her biography took on a different meaning for me and it forced me to look at her life in within the through the lens of what's been happening over the past five or six years in particular so um my work is heavily influenced by the environment that we live in but i had no idea that once it got published that we would be at the place we are today and i think of hamer what would she think she would on the one hand, I believe not be surprised. On the other hand, uh, she might be surprised at the, um, the rigor and the, the, the tremendous energy put into racist, uh, racist and racism and um, um, denying people the right to vote, something that she had fought so hard for. So, um, when I started, I, you know, I, I started researching the biography and there are so many resources available now um, that wouldn't have been available 20 years ago, let's say. And I have to give a shout out to all the civil rights veterans out there who have donated their papers, um, made sure that um, the record of what was done and what was happening at the time have been placed in archives and libraries and institutions around the country who have turned around and made them available to the world by digitizing them. They prioritize digitizing a lot of those documents. So it would have been impossible. It would not have been able to write this book in the four years that I did without access to the internet and all those documents that are online. And, um, and then being able to interview some of those civil rights activists. Um, that's something that um, I couldn't do with my first couple of books because they were 19th century subjects. And interviewing people for Rosemary Kennedy was like pulling teeth because when it comes to the Kennedy, very few people wanna to talk to you, particularly when it comes to Rosemary, the disabled um, daughter. So it was a joy to talk to people who were just so, uh, 
so alive with with information and also to hear in their voices and see on their faces the the still the the, the joy and wonder that they remembered when they met Fannie Lou Hamer for the first time and to hear them talk about her was just thrilling for me because it brought her to life in a way that I hadn't been able to feel for my other biography subjects. So um, I, I talked to people and, and my goal for the biography was to really center Hamer in the movement and also to look at the movement through her eyes and also to write about her as the, a woman, a, a little girl, a sister, a daughter, um, a wife, a mother, a community member, a church member. Um, I wanted people to know the whole Fannie Lou Hamer because I believe you can't understand a leader until you understand where they came from because they aren't grown up, you know, they aren't born full grown and leaders when they're born, they become that. And what are the catalysts? What are those moments in time that happen to a person that propels them to a leadership position. And um, for Hamer, it, I think it's imp particularly important to see that because she lacked an education, um, uh, a, a former education. She had a sixth grade level education, if that really. And so um, to become a leader out of that kind of background um, kind of defies the template we have for leaders today. So to give you a brief overview of her life, she was born in 1917 um, in Mississippi, in Choctaw County. And she was the 20th child of Jim and Ella Townsend, um, who were sharecroppers. Um, and what other biographers had missed when writing about her is that when Hamer was born, seven of those 20 children had already died. Oh. Four of them, in the four years before she was born. Mm -hmm. So it, it is just, it's stunning. And it tells you a lot about the survival rate for black children in Mississippi was maybe one out of four died before they reached the age of five at that time in Mississippi. So um, she was born in a very difficult world for uh, black children and black families. And the sharecropping system was not a fair system. And I, I hope I don't need to go into all those details, but it just was a lot of hard work for very little. And um, so when she was about three or four years old, they moved to Sunflower County to Ruleville, uh, which John, you were just talking about the, the town that you visited um, and her family sharecropped there. And some years were good years, other years were bad years. And Hamer would talk about how, um, you know, some years the only food they had in the wintertime were greens that her mother would scrape off the ground and mix with a little flour and try to make a gravy. And um, the things that her mother had to do to, to try to put food on the table. Um, really difficult circumstances. So many children suffered from malnutrition and um, diseases. They were, they, you know, the, the sanitary conditions were terrible and um, diseases just spread through those sharecropper shacks and communities, um, taking its toll on children and families. Um, her father was a part-time part Baptist minister. So she was raised in the Baptist church and I think he ruled that house with a very heavy hand. Um, she doesn't talk about him much in all of her interviews and um, in her speeches. She rarely mentions him. 
Um, she talks about her mother a lot. Her mother was a huge influence on her. And Hamer and her siblings um, all noted that Hamer was her favorite child. And I can see why after losing seven babies, particularly four before Hamer was born, that she would find this child to be a special gift and would protect her and do whatever she could to make sure she survived. So, um, but Hamer was a brilliant child, even though she could only go to school like three months out of the year and they were poorly equipped classrooms. Um, and she had a beautiful singing voice, even as a child. So she was, she was special in the community too. And um, she would recite poetry at church and, and uh, she really was something special, definitely something special. Um, when the Great Depression came, the family suffered greatly. Her mother was blinded after hoeing in the field and something flew up in her eye and it became infected. And because she didn't have access to health care, she went blind. Um, and her father died in 1939. And um, so taking care of her mother rested on, you know, 20, 22 year old Hamer. And during the 1930s, Hamer lived with her parents. Her siblings had all moved on either to the north or west or somewhere else. And some of them sharecropped on other neighboring plantations. So she really had a burden to take care of her family. Um, uh, so she quit school in the sixth grade in, in 1929. Um, she learned how to make bootleg liquor from her father, even though he was a Baptist minister and he thought that liquor was the devil's brew. He brewed, you know, liquors to sell to help his family survive. And, um, but in, uh, she got married actually to a guy named Charlie Gray, which few people seem to know about. And then they divorced in 1943 during the war. And she married Pap Hamer, um, another local sharecropper and mechanic on the Marlowe plantation outside of Ruleville. And they got married and um, adopted two daughters. And Hamer was just never satisfied. She just, you know, she later talked about, you know, she would complain to the other laborers in the fields about how they weren't treated fairly by the, the boss. And, um, you know, she watched while the boss used an altered pea, you know, the weight that they would use to weigh the bags of cotton. And so when he wasn't looking, she'd switch out the pea that was a, a, the right one, not, not altered, so that they would be paid fairly. And um, she noticed the, the luxuries that the white families had and, and the black families didn't have, and it, she resented it tremendously and rightfully so. And during the 1950s, she became involved with some civil rights activity in Mississippi, um, very sort of underground, not out in the open. Uh, later on in her speeches, she'd say that she didn't know anything about civil rights. She didn't know she had the right to vote. She didn't know anything until SNCC arrived in Ruleville in the 19, uh, early 1960s. But that's not true because she was already active with the NAACP and um, uh, other organizations there in Mississippi. So, but it, things just weren't happening. And um, so in 1961 though, and I, so I said, I look for these moments that transform somebody from a brilliant person to a leader. In 1961, uh, Hamer, who had been suffering from fertility issues for a long time, um, she had fibroid tumors, she had several miscarriages, a couple of stillbirths, and she was suffering. And uh, the woman on the plantation, Mrs. Marlowe, recommended that she go to the local doctor 
and have him remove the tumors. So perhaps she'd have a successful pregnancy. And so she went to Dr. Charles Doro, who was the son of the mayor of Ruleville. And um, he said he could take care of the tumors, but what he did was uh, give her a complete hysterectomy without her knowledge or permission. Oh. Oh. And did not even tell her after the surgery was <sighs> over. And she discovered it when the cook in the Marlowe house overheard Mrs. Marlowe talking to a, a relative of hers about the hysterectomy. So it sent Hamer into a, a depression. She was angry. She questioned God. She said, you know, why did you let this happen to me? What, you know, what the hell? And um, there was no recourse. And apparently this doctor had a reputation for giving um, hysterectomy, sterilizing women, black women. Um, and so she, she just, you know, wanted to hide and was so angry. Um, but something in her that ch it changed her. So when the SNCC workers came to Mississippi in 1962, well, they were there before, but they came to Ruleville, um, Bob Moses and um, uh, James Bevel and, uh, and Dory Lander and a whole group of them came to Ruleville and they had a meeting at Hamer's church and they wanted people to register to vote and said, we will support you. We'll take you there. We'll stand by you. Let's do this. And they, they gave, speeches and used biblical passages and talking about their rights. And Hamer had never heard that kind of language and linked with civil rights before. And so she raised her hand and said, I'll go. So she went with 18 others to Indianola, the capital of Sunflower County, and she tried to take this test. She flunked it. And, but she became more determined that you know, this is something she needed to, to do. But when she got home that night, she was evicted from the plantation. Um, W.D. Marlowe said, uh, you know, Fanny, we're not ready for this here in Mississippi. Only 5% of eligible black voters in Mississippi were allowed to vote. And those literacy tests were absurd and crazy. And, um, you know, no one could really pass them unless you had a law degree and knew the constitution. Um, the registrars in the county seats would, would pass, um, you know, white illiterate people all the time and, and register them to vote, but never any African-Americans. So it was a problem. And Hamer got even more angry after being evicted and SNCC hired her and supported her. And she later called the arrival of SNCC as the arrival of the new kingdom because he, she could not believe the courage and the dedication and um, the, the passion of the young people who came to Mississippi and were willing to, to be hurt or die for her right to vote. And so they really elevated her. And, um, Bob Moses is the one that recognized that she was a leader in the community, even if she didn't necessarily view herself that way. And he made sure that she got the, the resources that she needed to rise up and be a leader in Mississippi. And, um, and that carried her forward. And until in the June of 1963, things were going, she thought the way she'd hoped they would, that she was becoming the change that she wanted to see. And she was arrested on a trip back from South Carolina, where she had gone with a group of other SNCC workers and other local people 
to take classes in voter registration and um, citizenship classes and things and nonviolent protest techniques. And she was arrested um, with five others and sent to the Winona jail where she was um, brutally beaten and raped and the others were brutally beaten and um, she almost died. And she actually lived with lifelong injuries or, or health issues because of that beating. Was and she charged she, with anything? Was, uh, was she charged well, they were, they, the group tried to uh, integrate the, J, the, um, the restaurant at the bus terminal, which should have been uh -huh. integrated based on federal law. And then it was, you know, stupid charges like, you know, a resisting arrest, which of course they didn't resist arrest. And so she came out of that and it was another turning point. It was a rebirth moment for her. She could have just said, I can't take this anymore. But she, she didn't miss a beat. She, that anger, she channeled into fighting even harder. And um, as many of you know about the, her speech at the Democratic Convention in 1964 in Atlantic City, she rocked the world. After her speech, those delegates in Atlanta, congressmen in Washington, D.C., got thousands of telegrams from constituents around the country. You know, like, what, what's going on in Mississippi? What's happening? What is this all about? So she, that, was, that was such a, a moment, and it really ended up changing the world. And she had her struggles and her anger and pain and frustration, but she always went back to her faith and her family to, to rejuvenate herself and to find the solace and the, the, the passion and energy she needed to carry on. Um, and she made, you know, there are many more things that she did, um, but unfortunately she became very sick in the 1970s. She had lots of health issues and then she developed breast cancer and she died in 1997. But her legacy is still powerful and important today. And I, I hope that people who learn about her see people like her in their communities, if they don't even see it in themselves, that there are people in the community that in their community that need the support like Fannie Lou Hamer needed it to become leaders, to push um, this country forward, to make it a more equal and, and just society. Yeah, she, uh, I think you, she died in 1977. 77. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. 77. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, you might go into that. Um, in Mississippi, I wasn't with SNCC because I was not able to. I knew I would could not be in the uh, nonviolent thing for just I just knew, knew I wouldn't take it. But I was down there at Tougaloo because some of us from Harvard went down to teach at the Tougaloo Summer School. And um, so the, the, their teachers could go elsewhere in the summer anyway. Um, that's how I happened to get to that convention. And the thing about that convention, of course, is the establishment Democrats, the Democratic Party, the ones that are running it now in the way they're running it, you know, they, they've been there a long time. So they were down there. They were supporting supposedly the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Caucus, but they were at the same time, sabotaging them. And they were hoping that they could throw enough, um, uh, you know, benefits or whatever they were trying to do, however they do it, I don't know, but they were, you know, 
bribery for who knows what, but they were trying to get them to fight just to a certain point and then concede to the regular Democrats and, and not take their seats. And they might've got away with it really, except Fannie Lou Hamer was not going to do it. And she was so powerful and influential that even if someone wanted to backslide, except that they couldn't, you know, you, they couldn't, no one could go against her. They would be ashamed and, you know, and the whole, uh, uh, but so these other Democrats who were there at, in uh, Jackson, they later then went to uh, the regular convention. And again, even I think using Martin Luther King and others, they were saying with Hubert Humphrey and the others were saying, look, you know, you guys have taken it as far as you can and uh, you're not going to be able to, uh, you know, you just have to compromise, do this and that. But Fannie Lou Hamer again showed up the entire party. Right. It's a complicated thing. She, she, it, things were um, very black and white for her, but for politicians, there's always a gray area to move around and negotiate. She was not into negotiating at all. Um, so that was partly her naivete, but it was partly her strength too. So, you know, she did have to battle other forces in Mississippi, putting the white people aside in the black community and in the black political community, there were elites, there were very well-educated men and mm -hmm. some women, and uh, particularly some of those men did not really care for Hamer. They looked down on her. She didn't have perfect diction. She she was a little bit of an embarrassment to them. Her clothes were, you know, not what they'd hope a, a woman would wear. Um, so they they were not the kindest to her. And actually, they split from her during the 60s. But um, and then the same thing happened when they did get to. Oh, so the, well, the white party, there was an all white Mississippi um, party delegation going to Atlantic City because they didn't let black people vote. vote so it was all white delegates. And uh, Hamer's newly formed party, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, wanted to challenge the seating of that all white delegation. And they were allowed to make their case in front of the credentials committee. And the negotiating in the background was horrific, what, what they were doing behind Hamer's back. Um, but she held firm. And so she, she did push the needle. She did push the needle. And when I when I went and I listened to uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson's the tapes from his office the secret tapes that he kept, mm -hmm. and I listened to the phone calls that he was making during that time period, while they're trying to negotiate with the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party to stand down, but at the same time he is so disgusted by the Mississippi White Party delegates, and he actually calls them out and he says, you know you're all racist and I, I'm sick of this, but I basically need you to vote for me to be president so we can move this country forward. But those Mississippi white people were never gonna vote for him. And in fact, even though uh, the, the, the black party was not allowed to be seated and the white party was allowed, that white party walked out and they didn't vote anyway because they went off and they voted for um, uh, Barry Goldwater, you know, there were such jerks. And then other Southern delegations threatened to vote for George Wallace and, and nominate him, even though he wasn't running, <laughs> nominate him. So there was so much pressure on Johnson, but he hated them. He hated them. And he wanted to be president because then he could sign that civil rights legislation, the 1965 uh, Voting Rights Act that, you know, changed everything, which has been 
you know, broken apart since 2013 with Shelby V. Holden. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's remarkable to just hear the negotiations going on with Johnson in the background. And he, he doesn't turn out to be the ogre that I expected him to be. He really hated those white people down there the way they were behaving. He was sick of it, really sick of it. But Hamer, you know, she may have not been able to seat, sit on that delegate, that uh, convention floor and vote for Johnson, but she appeared in 1968 and um, was seated on the floor and she got a standing ovation. So that's really great. Plus all the rank and file of SNCC supported Hamer and the community people that, support, that SNCC knew, the grassroots, the grassroots people mm -hmm. all supported what she did. Right. Right. There were lots of class issues going on, definitely, in Mississippi. Yeah, well, I'd like, Charlie I, Edwards, yeah. Charlie Edwards in that group. And so I'd like to go back. I think it was um, Dr. Jones's comment about um, Mississippi having the most elected um, Black politicians mm. in the country. Yes. And, um, and so what does that mean for a state like Mississippi that ranks in the bottom for everything, you know, everything? It's just horrific. So how much power do they really have when there's a white governor who's just, you know, I, I don't I, I'm, I'm not clear on it. And I, so I don't study Mississippi today, but it is confusing to me how they everybody thinks they have the power, but that where's the power? Where is it? Well, I think it's a difficult it's a really difficult issue to sort out. At least it is for me. Mm. And let me just throw this out. And it might, it might sound like left field, but it, at least it's something for us to think about. In one of the Batman Superman movies, Bruce Wayne is riding along in a car. And one of the other characters, because he obviously is, you know, he can't fly, do any of those things. The character asks him what his superpower power is. And Bruce Wayne's answer is, I'm rich. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, we, you look at you know Michael Jordan owns sports teams. Jay Z owns recording companies. The Koch brothers own utilities. They own coal mines. They own railroads. It seems to me that part of the answer, maybe not all of it, but I don't. I'm not even sure how much is not political. It's economic. It's wonderful to hear the history. It's wonderful <laughs> to have leaders like that. It's also very depressing to see where we are. Kate, I think you said from the ashes, they're not ashes, they're fires is what it amounts to. You know, I worked for an oil company for 28 years and um, in public, everything was very well done. In private, all I heard were the jokes about the niggers and the spicks and the yids. Um, it, it was just very, very disheartening. I'm a very light skinned black person. So they felt comfortable around me, even though they knew my background. Um, we have made some progress, but I am very discouraged at this point in time. And I look at the Supreme Court, which has become a political entity at this point. I'm very concerned about Roe v. Wade. I'm sure they're going to gut it as much as they can. Uh, it's, I'm, you know, I'll be 80 years old in just a few weeks. And I must admit, under Obama, I had great optimism. And I have lost that optimism at this point in time. I hope I'm proven wrong. I, I'm looking for new leaders to come along to carry that torch. Maybe Stacey, Stacey Abrams in Georgia will be one of those leaders. 
Uh, we'll see whether or not we can have a fair election there. Uh, random thoughts, Kent, but um, it's, it's just a little discouraging as to where we are now compared to where we were just a few years ago. Yeah, but there's nothing to do but to keep going on and keep fighting. Keep fighting. And find those leaders in the community, identify them and support them and help them rise up. Stacey Abrams isn't the only one. I'm sure there are others. It's just, you know, recognizing them and, and you know, standing beside them, elevate them. I, I don't know how else to do it or say it. I, it's going to be hard because, you know, they're still using the same playbooks they used in the 50s and 60s. Um, the white supremacists, the exact same playbooks. So maybe we do need to go back and revisit that history and see how did we combat that playbook. Yeah. Well, Kate, can you tell me about book process a little bit? How long did it take you and were there any surprises and did it turn out the way you thought it would turn out? Um, so it took about four years and... Um, a chunk of that was during the pandemic that I had to research and write. I couldn't go to archives. I had already made three made arrangements for three trips to Mississippi and they all got canceled because of, well, once there was a flood and I couldn't go. And then the other two times it was because of the pandemic. But uh, the archivists and who did go into the archives and libraries for stuff um, to do work, you know, at distance from their colleagues, but no one was allowed into the archives. They were fabulous. I would request something and they would scan it and send it to me. And so, you know, they do so much work and they deserve all the credit and support in the world because they made my work much easier. And I got documents that I never would have had access to without <clears throat> them. Um, and so, and then I have a great editor at, um, at Oxford who was patient. <laughs> he was really patient and, um, he has a great eye. And so it, the writing process was frantic and hard, really hard. Um, but he was, he was, he was excellent. And then I have my, um, my writing groups and uh, history groups at Brandeis and the women in those groups, they read several chapters and they were vital to me finishing up, particularly the chapter on, on Hamer and the Winona jail, because I went through, the, the trial testimony, the, the police officers were brought up on charges. And um, so there's testimony there. It'll, it's shocking and it's horrifying. So I used all those details. And from Hamer's FBI file, which, by the way, is heavily redacted still to this day. And um, so and I requested, but way before the pandemic, to have it unredacted. And, you know, that process is really slow. I don't know what the heck that is all about. But then once the pandemic set in, it stopped. So I never got it in time to finish the book. But I went on the internet. <laughs> and there are people out there who uh, ask for FBI files, get them unredacted and just put them on the internet. And someone had gotten the files of other people that were arrested and in jail with Hamer. And their mm -hmm. files are not redacted redacted. So every page that was redacted in Hamer's file was unredacted in theirs. So I was able to, but that's just going on internetarchive.org. <laughs> and uh -huh. there are those fabulous people. I don't know where they live. Oh. I don't know why they do what they do, but 
there are the files. So it was, those were the joyful moments. And, but anyway, so I used all that information to write that chapter on Winona and um, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty horrifying. And so they helped me work through it because in the, in the Me Too era and um, Black Lives Matter, I needed to give voice to what Hamer never spoke about. Um, I had heard from friends of hers that I interviewed that she told them that she had been raped, but she never told the authorities that, or they didn't record it if she did tell them that. So I, I, had, to, I had to tell her story with her words and um, it, was, it was pretty hard to write. So there were joyful moments and then very difficult moments like that. They mainly hide mm -hmm. their undercover people. So that, yeah, that, that's true. <clears throat> There were some that they were like some of the agents' names were redacted in her file, but not redacted in the other mm -hmm. files. The FBI agents that interviewed her. Yeah, I tried sense. to find the um, identities of some of the informants, and some of them were revealed, but they didn't really inform much, as far as I could find. Um, so I, I'm not sure why they keep hers redacted. It's kind of weird. It is very weird, especially now after all this time. Yeah. Yeah. Pardon me? They know how important she was. Yes. That might be. That might that, be. That's a tribute to her that they're still re yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. I, I, I just wanted to share a little quote from Fannie Lou before I go that, that, that was inspiring to me. Uh, she, she was shot at 15 times when she was trying to register to uh, vote. And she, she had to get out of her, her home for months to get away from the KKK. And people asked her what she, what she was doing. And she, she told the registrar, you'll see me every 30 days until I pass the uh, literacy test here, which was rigged against her. And then she said, I guess if I had any sense, I'd have been a little scared. But what was the point of being scared? The only thing they could do is kill me. And it kind of seemed like they've been trying to do that a little bit at a time since I could remember. Yeah. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Hey, let me ask you uh, just one last thing, because I don't want to leave leave you with a, a discouraging note. I will put it that way. <laughs> Obama came out of the woodwork. Uh, no one really knew him until he gave that wonderful speech that just was enthralling for everyone. In Boston? In, Boston. Yeah. Where do you think the new leaders will come from? It's not, not from our 80-year-olds. Everybody on this list, except for you, is about 80 years old, okay? Yeah. So we need new blood. We need young blood. Where is it going to come from? I haven't seen anyone come out of the woodwork yet. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, I, I think, I just feel it's coming. I just feel it's coming. There's a, you know, there's a reaction and an action and a reaction. I, it's coming and it will be young people. And um, so that's why I, I, I hope young people read this book. So they're not thinking they have to reinvent the wheel that, that this has happened before it's and there are generations ahead before them that can help them and support them so i there are young people out there that are you know fighting and um i hope they know how to do it together collectively and and support the leaders in their groups there are some in congress now i mean there, there are a lot of younger people who are, are very active already uh in either, uh, and as I said, besides the Congress people in, in, in more local politics. So of course, we, we don't know which one 
just where that person is going to come. But you know, the person may not be necessarily uh, somebody identified as African-American because all, all of these, these groups together, the Asians are becoming, are, are, are becoming very active. And of course the Hispanics and other, and another group, and these, because it's really a cross ethnic problem, this, this injustice and the, you know, suppression of rights, um, uh, the, uh, all the rules, the attempt to suppress the right to vote. Uh, these are very broad issues. So right. I, I think, you know, we're gonna see a, a new coalition, I think. And I also think that, so shout out to the lawyers here. Um, Back in in the 50s and 60s, lawyers did so much work behind the scenes to build those those um, arguments against all those Jim Crow laws and the traditions and blah 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 blah. And they you know they dug up that 14th Amendment to make it as important as it was in the you know uh, in 1869 as it is, as it is today. So, um, and I saw their work during the sixties when they interacted with Hamer and um, the files that they sent to Congress, the testimonies that were taken, um, the work that lawyers did then, I imagine they're still doing today, but I, yes. I think a lot of it's going to come from there too, because it's going to end up in the courts. It's going to have to, and um, we need really sharp lawyers to carry this through. Having uh, worked with advocacy groups for a very long time, um, it's my experience that leaders come out of the blue and, uh, and some inner fire catches fire and trying to help them and recruit them and train them is not where it's at. But where they are is in the frontline grassroots people. So John was saying the SNCC grassroots people, they all love Fannie Lou Hamer. Of course they did, because they knew she was right. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and it's, it's all classes, all races, all sexes. I mean, you never know where they're going to crop right. up. And that's the only thing that actually keeps me going, that things come out of the blue to help, mm -hmm. including leaders. Well, we can't go give up. That's, that's simply not an option. Kate's book just testifies to how a leader just comes out of nowhere. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I might comment that uh, there's a a sense of inevitability that we get by, I don't know, aspects of, his, of reading history that is a little difficult because it gives everybody a sense of inevitability about how things develop. And uh, speaking of the situation today, I'm completely hopeful because certainly before SNCC and the civil rights movement in the 60s, nobody could have possibly predicted what, how that would have, uh, how that would have developed. And another thing is that back then, uh, no one imagined that it would be successful in the early 60s because the police state in the South was, it was a total police state and nobody thought that was going to, 
crack uh, when it did. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested to hear Kate's description of, of Johnson's tapes because uh, his work in getting the civil rights laws passed always made him a great hero to me. And I always kind of enjoyed him just as a personality. So to hear that is, uh, is very heartening. But, you know, I, I was down South in the early sixties and the passage of those civil rights laws was, was a complete surprise to grass, grassroots people down there. So uh, th this period right now is a very uh, dark period because of the kind of fascistic tones that, that things are taking uh, in, the, in the white population. But in terms of uh, long range American history, there's absolutely nothing new going on right now. So uh, uh, there's, there, there's, and uh, you know, so the, the staying power of the people is very complete and new things will happen. I was just at the, uh, virtually at the SNCC uh, 60th anniversary celebrations. And uh, well, the young people, the hopefulness, things are, things will be happening because civil rights movement and the whole progress, the whole uh, uh, good developments in this country are based on truth. And uh, what is happening over there on the right is not based on truth. And so it's gonna cave in and, and many, many good things will, 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 will come out of this. Uh, there, there, was, there were lots of young people uh, full of plans and full of hope at the, at the SNCC convention. Oh, and Kate, I wonder, did, uh, were any of the archivists at the, at the I'm just curious, at the, at the SNCC, SNCC well, uh, Legacy Project? So I, I attended some of those sessions. I don't remember uh, if any of the archivists presented. They may have been in the audience, but I don't think they presented that I can remember. Um, or I didn't attend, I didn't zoom in on one of those panels. I don't remember. Well, but were, does the Civil Rights Movement uh, Veterans website or the SNCC Legacy uh, Archives, are they helpful to you? In, oh, yeah. In oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, they're just amazing. And the university, not the university, the Wisconsin Historical Society, they have a whole um, um, part of the archives dedicated to the Freedom Summer. And they have photographs and documents and uh, you know, internal memos and just that's where actually I learned about Dr. Charles Doro who sterilized Fannie Lou Hamer because um, SNCC started an investigation of him and they found a bunch of women that had been sterilized by him and they were trying to get their testimony so they could uh, file charges against him in court. But it looks like the women were afraid to testify. You know, uh, black women in a community against a white doctor, they just, so nothing ever happened. So, um, so it's those archives that were just great. When we were freshmen, Ross Barnett, I think when we were freshmen, right? Isn't that when they sent Ross Barnett to Harvard to, uh, <laughs> to give a lecture at Mem Hall? And there was a big, we had a demonstration. I think we tried to keep him. Uh, and I think uh, maybe um, Walt Kelly, Pogo, you know, he was kind of involved with people trying to block 
Ross Barnett and the right wingers were talking about it as a freedom of speech issue only. And uh, does anyone else remember that? Yes, I remember. Mm. And I'm one of the only people probably on this group who actually has talked to Ross Barnett. Oh, okay. Really? <laughs> He's bad in yeah. person as I read about. Well, when did you talk to him? Uh, in the summer, in the, right after my sophomore year. Mm. Um, I, my Germ I, I had spent a year in Germany before I went to Harvard and my uh, German roommate came and I said, Frieda, you, you, you got to see the South in addition to the rest of the country. So we went down, he, he hitchhiked down to Atlanta and after exams, I, I flew to Atlanta and then we hitchhiked over to Mississippi and we just walked into the uh, governor's office and people there said, were saying uh, uh, that or I guess Barnett had said in his campaign, uh, at any time, just uh, kick in the door and speak to old Ross. And there were some people who said, you'd probably do better just kicking in old Ross and speaking to the door. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he, 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 he spoke to us a little bit, then then over and, and met Medgar Evers. Oh, wow. 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 Yeah. Um, I, I hesitate to do this to, to detract from all this conversation, but I, I, I want to ask you a question. You, you, you train as a historian, but you're really a biographer. What's the difference? Well, it's interesting you ask that because when I applied for a PhD program, there were some programs that wouldn't consider my application because I wanted to work on Harriet Tubman's biography. Hmm. They said, that's not, you know, that's not what we do, you know, for to train people to do. <laughs> we wow. train you to be a historian. And so I, that confused me, but at the university of New Hampshire, a couple other programs too were very open to the idea, but it was unusual, at least back in the nineties for a PhD candidate to work on a biography as their dissertation. <laughs> but the University of New Hampshire, they were like, oh yes, this is great. Because some of them were Africanists, African-American historians. And they were like, this is gonna be great. You're gonna find so much in those Southern archives. And, and so I went to the place that gave me the best support. They really were amazing. If it hadn't been for them, I don't know if I could have done it. So I, you know, having um, mentors and, and professors that were keen on a biography, it was great. So I'm a historian that writes biographies. <laughs> that was Kate Clifford Lawson. Her new book is Walk With Me, a biography of Fannie Lou Hamer. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, and you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.